Welcome to the Edgy Futurist podcast, episode 154. Thanks to all of our amazing guests over the last few years. We, uh, we're really privileged to uh, have had some fantastic guests, and we know we've got some great ones coming up as well. Excited to have uh, Alice Keeler coming on from over in the pond, over the pond in a few weeks, Andrew, Angela Arnold as well. We've got the Army, Andrew Strachan, lots of other uh, really important people that have, uh, are going to be shaping the future of education coming up in the next few weeks and months. Yeah, and we are we're really excited for today's episode because joining us again is the masterful Al Kingsley, Group CEO of NetSupport and longtime friend of the podcast. And this is, uh, we think it's Al's fourth appearance on the podcast. Uh, so if you go back to the catalogue, you can catch him on episode 32, 121. Uh, and right back before we had the Edge of Futures podcast, if you scroll right the way down the bottom of your app, uh, we, we had a, a podcast before this one called In the Studio With, um, which was which was just me and Ben trying to figure out how to work this and, and what, what we were doing. And, and Al kindly joined us uh, back then. So he's on episode nine of that series as well. Um, yeah, you would have thought Al had... Had had enough of us by now. I'm feeling like in a couple of years, there's going to be like with Ant and Deck, they're going to look back and uh, you guys are, are going to be there with you looking all fresh and your little yeah, biker grove moment. And then Cat Daly will come in. I'm guessing I'm Cat Daly uh, when it really <laughs> kicked off and you got fun. But uh, yeah, in the studio, I don't even think I knew about in the studio. Did you have like a puppet or some kind <laughs> of furry Steve. animal to support you? Did you just compare yourself to Cat Dealey? This is the, what, what yeah, is going did. <laughs> the, the good looking one I was gonna was gonna say <laughs> of the, the crew. I was gonna yeah. uh, for some reason Apologies I to knew, deck for that remark. Yeah, well, yeah. I know obviously they upset you and uh, the the tattoo that you've got over each chest of, of, of the of the Avant and Deck, uh, like all Geordie's Dan, is uh, is difficult. So apologies. We'll, we'll to... not we'll not get into why Steve knows what's tattooed on my chest, but let's let's carry on. What an intro, eh? Uh, we'll go back to it, shall we? <laughs> Apologies. So, yeah, Al started his career with Barclays Bank, then Unilever, working within the finance and management accounting before focusing on the early adoption of new IT technologies in the early 90s. He's a chair of three governing bodies and is the author of lots of articles, as well as, do we call it a book? We'll say My Secret EdTech Diary, which came out earlier this year. I think we should call it a book because uh, it is a book. <laughs> <laughs> Have you not read it? Because he does say, is it a book or is it a diary, Ben? That's what he oh, says. That's right. where the, the, yeah, that's where it came from. Thank, thanks, Steve. So, uh, thanks, Steve. Yeah, sorry well, for dropping you in there. I'll be asking you lots of questions to, to ensure that you have read the book for, during this evening. <laughs> Al, it's great to have you on the podcast. Sorry that we take so long to get into uh, it, talking to our guests. Thanks for joining us again tonight. Good to be here. And I wasn't on Biker Grove, so I feel slightly out of the conversation on this one with Ant and Deck. Um, but um, <laughs> shall we split in the middle and call it a pamphlet rather than a book or a diary? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's, let's do that. Let's do that. Actually, let's not. Ask, let's not. Before, before we get into it, Dan, who was the yeah. caretaker of Biker Grove? Were it Terry? Uh, How can be there Terry? It was, was Jeff. <laughs> Jeff. 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 He was. Jeff. 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 So Al, Jeff had a beard Jeff. as well. Oh. Yeah. Was it a handlebar beer? Perfect match. Like a yeah. strap one. Perfect. Anyway, sorry. Should, should we ask some questions and find a bit more about, about Al rather than calling him Jeff from Biker Grove? Apologies there, Al. I still feel like I'm having a, a little bit of a Twilight Zone moment here, but fantastic. <laughs> oh, oh, this is us. This is what we do. This is what we do, Twilight Zone. And and you are, uh, I think it is number four. Uh, so thanks for coming on for a fourth time and not being bored of us. Um, uh, but it's, it's it's great to have you on, um, and we we want to we're going to get into talking about this new book that that was released earlier this year, um, and then obviously some about some of the work that you do in the sector. But I wondered if we could go back a little bit, talking about twilight zones and going back into uh, like a near distant past. Um, when you first started out, we said in, in the introduction that you worked at Barclays and Unilever before you got into EdTech and, and IT. I wondered um, if you could kind of cast your mind back to then and think about maybe what you learned then that maybe you, you, you're ready to, to share and, and that led you into doing what you're doing now. Well, I mean, actually, I'm casting my mind back even further than um, episode four. I, mean, I was a teenager when I first came on the Edge of Futurist podcast, um, but that's how long ago it was. Um, but yeah, Barclays Bank, um, I was going to say happy memories, but um, constructive memories is probably the best term. Um, I think like a lot of people, you, you take a bit of a steer in your um, career direction from those people that you trust around you. 
So quite a lot of parental advice and careers advice that, hey, you know, finance, that's a good safe bet for a career. And um, you're never going to go wrong when you're, when you're working with money. Um, and so I moved into Barclays. And, and whilst I learned lots of skills about, you know, the usual first things, you know, independence, working with teams, understanding process and procedure, I guess what resonated really quickly with me, um, probably partly to my inexperience and a degree of youthful arrogance was, you know, I had loads of ideas of things I wanted to do and the structures and standards in the finance sector don't really allow, um, you know, individuals to come up with ideas of ways to change because systems and processes have been there for a very long time. And and so I found it actually quite claustrophobic working in one of the largest organisations. And I think that was more reflective on me than, than the institution in the, in the bigger picture. Um, but I kind of moved from there to Unilever using those kind of finance skills because I wanted to develop and evolve, you know, in terms of the broader, how does, how does that fit into the, the operations of a business rather than just seeing the, the proceeds coming and going. Um, and so I, I did have a very fond time working at Unilever. I worked in Cambridge um, and, and I was involved in management accounts, which makes it sound somehow better than financial accounts. It wasn't. It was really just slightly closer to the coalface in terms of production and what work was in progress, stock and equipment levels and so on. Um, but being the late 80s, um, one of the things that was becoming more prevalent on the desk was a computer rather than a mainframe out back. Uh, and I found that the IT side of things was far more interesting to me because it was new. Nobody was an expert. Ideas were welcome. And actually, you, almost every day you could see a way to improve a system or the way that we interacted with that system. Um, and so for me, that was kind of the, the pathway I wanted to go. I have to say the director's um, at my offices thought I was crazy wanting to move from a, um, a management accounting role into the IT team that were very much seen as uh, the folks that work in the dark at the end of the corridor. Um, but sometimes you just have to go with your heart. And so I kind of segued from my career at Unilever to um, being a bit bold and a bit of a, hey, in for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, I started consulting independently. So I went from a big, big organization to a, to an organization of one. And I found my path by actually doing the books and finance accounting for small businesses and at the same time getting them set up with their IT. And because that was still a fairly new sector, people were really open to ideas of how that could actually impact on, you know, surprisingly, on their profitability and their operational performance. And like all these things, you know, technology is a, is a lever. It doesn't um, make bad products good. It doesn't make bad businesses good, but it can certainly make them more effective and more efficient. So that was kind of the pathway that got me into wanting to talk more about tech than specifically the business side. That's, that's amazing to hear that. I didn't, until uh, Ben mentioned it and put and put those on the show notes for today, I didn't, had no idea that that was your background. I think because I think everybody knows you, especially... Um, in, in the EdTech circle is kind of Mr. EdTech really. So to, to know that you had that different background and 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 has informed where where you've ended up today is is, is always great to hear that. Um what did you have a passion for education back then, Al? What was did you did you did you have any ideas about where you'd want to be at, at, at this point in terms of having net support or, or was it completely a a journey that that was um I guess a realization to you as well i'd love to say it was mapped out in the stars as my <laughs> destiny but that would probably be well it wouldn't be true for a start but it would also sound a bit grand now i mean i've always been interested myself in terms of i'm a nosy sod so you know i like learning and i always like to see opportunities for others to develop i think like many people in all honesty you know my children were born in the um the mid 90s and that was a catalyst for me wanting to look at opportunities for them in terms of education and we took a bit of a detour in my journey because um, we were starting with the software and the very first um, NetSport products. Um, and one of the key things we needed to do was set up our business in the US because obviously that's a, a really key part of, of growing a, a technology company, or we felt it was in terms of opportunity. Um, so I packed the bags and moved from um, from the UK across to Atlanta. Um, and it was in Atlanta from 99 through to 2002, setting up our North American operations. And in truth, we went to Atlanta because it was the hub of Delta Airlines. And I spent Monday down to the airport and Friday I came home and I was just traveling around into school districts around the country, um, showcasing what we were developing, which at the time there were very few options on the table. 
uh, and also learning. And, uh, you know, there's an equal measure if you're going to evolve products. So 2002 became a point where um, my children were both then at primary school age. And we had to make a decision. Do we want to bring our children up in the U.S. education system or the U.K. education system? Uh, I needed really to come back to HQ in terms of moving things forward because the U.S. was settled and established. So we moved back to the U.K. We moved to sunny Peterborough. Uh, and where we bought a house, um, there were new schools being built. And the first new school was being built. And they were looking for support to actually take the school, shape its future direction and so on. So... I, I took the view, which is if you want to, you know, help help schools be the best they can, you can either throw stones from the outside or you can jump in and roll your sleeves up. Uh, and so I got involved with Hampton College, uh, became a governor at the school. Um, a few years later, I became chair of governors uh, and then became chair of the governor leadership group across the schools in the city. And then there was an opportunity to build a new school uh, under the uh, free school program. So we converted Hampton College into a multi-academy trust of one. And then we did and were successful and we built another secondary school and then we bid for primaries and we were successful. And then for capacity, we decided to go a bit different and go all through with one of our schools so we could take that full learning journey. We did that. And then naturally, um, other schools have approached and wanted to come and join the family. Um, and I think in that kind of sharing mindset, I've always been happy to get involved with schools and find out more. And it was a case of, well, I know secondary, I know primary. I've been involved in infant schools. Um, and then what, through my work with the regional schools commissioners, what was the head teachers board, now it's the advisory board, where MATs are going through a period of challenge in their growth. Um, my role was to, where appropriate, go and join their um, board of trustees temporarily and assist in change. So I joined a MAP um, in North Norfolk, and, and which had specialist provision, which was another area I wanted to get exposure and, and support within. Um, and I've been there and helped them in terms of their development and evolution to, to viability more than anything. Uh, I then was asked to chair the um, pupil referral unit, so our alternative provision academy in Peterborough. Uh, I joined there for a few months to help sport change, and I've been there two years so far. And once you become involved and you see the building blocks and things moving forward, it's I, I find it quite hard to kind of draw a line and say, right, job done, I'm going to step away now. So um I'm a sucker for getting involved and you kind of get emotionally connected to a school and a journey and you want to stay there. So that's kind of why I've, I've got quite a few hats on the go in the education space, really. I think somebody listening to that can't fail but to be, first of all, impressed how you managed to spin all those plates and also be able to um, run a successful business. But I think it's also it's it's inspiring and, and, and kind of endearing that somebody is as passionate as, as, as you are about this, um, especially about taking one school and then going supporting other schools and, and building that. And I think that, that comes across in our relationship. We've talked about this quite a lot in our relationship with, with you, Al. I think you want to champion and support as many people as you can on the journey. And I think that's, I think it, it comes across that that's important to you that um, it's more than just uh, you getting as making as much money as you can. It's about supporting other people to do, what what what's in there are as well so i think that I, i'm i'm maybe i'm just over over hyping it but that's that's yeah. certainly how it feels it's appreciated i mean i think you know the, the role within governance and boards of trustees and supporting schools you know it's it's a voluntary thing but i i always try and be open and say you know it's a two-way street i don't believe you can ever get involved in any entity or organization and whilst you might impart as best you can your ideas, experience and wisdom, you always learn, you're always picking up new ideas. And I think if you go into the context of having those ears working as much as the mouth, you're always going to come off really well. But I, I defy anybody to, to, you know, to be asked to go and help support, you know, an infant school that's in a, in a, in a really precarious place. And then two years down the line, see the progress and the growth and have the children want to talk to you in the corridors and engage with what they're doing and see the enthusiasm building. I think you'd have to have a pretty hard skin to not really recognize that in the scheme of thing, that's the important stuff. That's the stuff when I'm even older and grayer and wrinkly that I shall sit in the armchair and feel proudest of. Yeah. And, and I know that all of us um, have been involved in governorship and trusteeship for as much as we can, because I think there is something quite powerful around that. 
um, doing something that's giving something that you, there's there is there is a mutual benefit because we don't because we feel it makes us feel good and we can give feel like we're doing something that's making a difference. But certainly that that element of being able to support schools, I I, I know that I I love that. And Steve, you're you're a chair of governors as well, aren't you? At a, at a primary school, and, and and know that that's kind of central to to what to what we do. And I think that's that's really important as a kind of segue into talking about. Um, your newest project and talking about getting into uh, as we get into your story about my secret ed tech diary whether it's a book whether it's a diary whether it's a pamphlet <laughs> still remains to be seen it's not it's, it's a it's a bloody big pamphlet if it's a pamphlet but um i know what you were trying to to do and uh, what i what i got from that and is that you were trying to kind of distill a few things there share some kind of trade secrets but that aren't tra- particularly secrets but also kind of help people on that journey and that's that that atmosphere or that kind of attitude of support and help is what comes across in the book and i'm guessing that's why you are part of the reason why you wrote it yeah i mean there was lots of reasons i mean there's always the question people often say is is why now uh, and it was an interesting one you know i've had lots of lovely lovely feedback about the book which you know is is, is always nice when you when people validate some of the ideas or, or, or the just the effort you put into producing something. I, I had one review that was undertaken, actually it was in Schools Week, and um, it was a very, you know, it was a nice review about the pop, parts of it, but it kind of led with, and the, the bit they focused on was, it's 18 months too late, uh, and in quite a negative way. Uh, and it kind of kind of hit a nerve a little bit with me, because the one thing that was a trigger for me was actually, for the first time the last 18 months, we've learned so much that we're actually looking at shaping our steps forward from a position of evidence rather than from a, a theoretical position. We've actually been empowered to try stuff and take risks and actually look at things. And we're trying to now reflect on moving forward. So for me, if I'd have written it 18 months ago, it would have been kind of out of date at this point now. But it kind of highlighted to me that there's still for many of this mindset that you know the ed tech conversation is just the same as it's always been. And I think the problem with that is you just get into Groundhog Day. You have to recognize that Actually, the choices, the options, the capabilities now are very different to they were five or 10 years ago. So, you know, one of the reasons for doing the book really for me was it's a little bit of a kind of a a them and us conversation. You know, you either walk in a room and talk about ed tech and people either, you know, ears prick up when they want to engage or they kind of duck for cover. A little bit of imposter syndrome. Oh, well, that's for the techies or whatever. And that's not for my topic. Don't feel comfortable about it. And the reality is, you know, the same way as pens and paper uh, are part of the the furniture of a classroom so should technology be and in that spirit it should be everybody's business and everybody should be comfortable talking whether it's just about the what does or doesn't work for them or what they'd like to be able to achieve if somebody had a magic wand so kind of rule number one for me was i want to write it in a way a bit like now we're having a chat i don't want to stand on ceremony and try and present it as some technical research paper a because that's not me and secondly, because it would defeat the purpose of it. So, you know, hopefully it comes across very much as, you know, a, a, a very accessible, chatty summary. And I kind of break it down into lots of different sections. But I think the starter for 10 is always that reflective practice, looking yeah. back and, and reflecting on what's happened in the past, really. And that's always the starter for 10, I think, when we're doing anything in technology. Yeah, I think, and I think that, that argument of that it's too late, I think... If I think that, that argument has completely missed the point of what's been happening over the last couple of years, and I think and, I, and I've I've come across it a few times, mainly on Twitter, um, really. But that kind of straw man argument of what edtech is, almost like, yep. you know, we've oh we tried it, we we had no choice, but we had to we had to have a go at it. But uh, thank God we're going back to how things were. It's it's a real. I would question how, and I know you've said we've experimented, we've we've come a long way, and I, and I completely wholeheartedly agree with that. But I think we've scratched the surface in terms of ed tech. I think I think a lot of places did a really good job of moving the the in real life classroom online. However, mm. that's and if we if if we're going to go into the mechanics of something like the Samar model, that's it's literally the first rung on the ladder. Um, yeah. So, and in, in where and how does how does edtech actually become truly transformational? Um, and I think your book delves into that. And to say that that is too late, I don't think it is. I think it's probably the perfect time to let to start having those conversations. 
I think I think the whole point, like anything, it's about a journey. You shouldn't ever be picking a point in time that says it's a start and a finish. Otherwise, you're missing the point with technology and evolution. I think where where I think there are real challenges is is a mindset of if you define the the kind of the boundary of the field based on what you know, it's never going to be an accurate definition. You know, you've always got to look beyond and and identify the questions you want to ask to then go and find those answers. And I think a lot of people who've been involved in technology for a long time, perhaps for some, have, have measured the, the likely positive benefits and failures based on what technology was in a classroom 10, 20 years ago. And of course, that's that's fundamentally changed. Now, you know, part of the reason for reflecting for me was, you know, it's very easy to, to highlight some of the real big, well-known projects that have happened with technology that have failed. And hey, don't we all love to talk about the failures more than the successes? But often the headlines don't really unpick behind it with, you know, that discussion about was it the technology or was it the project management, the, the CPD, the actual rollout and investment that was the challenge? Was it the software that you put on top of the technology that was the real barrier to implementation and success? And I kind of wanted to start with that kind of part of the narrative because I always argue the same when it comes to any school, MAT, district, whatever your organization or entity is, if you want to look at your technical roadmap in terms of digital, you've surely got to start by questioning and reflecting on what you've got already and how well it works, how effective it is, how well embedded it is, are the tools being used, are the staff confident, and all those kind of questions. Because surely you wouldn't go out and start looking at adding more until you knew how effectively you could use what you've already got. And, you know, and again, that's a business process, just the same as it is an education process. And so how do you convince people? Well, one is to try and highlight some of the points, if only to reassure people that this is just an evolution. It's an onward stretch. Now, a bit like Moore's law, you know, things are accelerating. That curve's heading upwards exponentially in terms of the potential for technology. But that doesn't automatically mean that the technology, just because there's more of it, is the right fit. So you also have to balance that and acknowledge it's always going to be where appropriate. But not Now, I don't want to get into the... You know, the, the conversations always get segued into. So what you're saying, Al, is five years from now, AI is going to replace teachers, isn't it? You know, and it's like, no, you know, what we've learned. And one of the key lessons I think we've learned over the last 18 months is technology was a fantastic facilitator. We talk about the blended learning, remote learning. But we all know the real measure of success was the, the person at the front of the room and the students at the back or in that digital setting. It was about the relationships. The tech was just there to facilitate that happening. And so if we start to break it down and talk about, well, actually, let's just think about this, not in terms of replacing, but in addition to supplementing. There are things we can do differently. Absolutely. You know, we can use tools, whether it's for personalized learning, to help reinforce what's been done within the traditional sense. Um, but I also, talking about the, the SAMA model, you know, early on in the book, I kind of took it and said, I know it's probably intended from a pedagogical point of view within the classroom, but let's just break the rules for a minute and, and apply SAMA on the bigger setting of a school or a, or a mat. Actually, lots of the things we learned over the last 18 months, whether it's about, you know, augmenting or modifying the way we did things, you know, think about using tools online for parents, evening, the way that we changed the way we did communications and engagement. Lots of the technology bits we've, we've wrapped around, you know, there'll be some that fail, but there are also lessons outside of the pure teaching and learning that were not necessarily equally, but were also important and a, a part of that journey because they tie into the subtle nuances, the, the staff well-being, the time, that most valuable of commodities, the way we engage with our parents. You know, suddenly our hard-to-reach parents, never at the school gate, would respond to messages on an app online and we could find different ways to engage with them. So, you know, I like the taking risk aspect of the last 18 months because it's proven some things work. It's proven other things don't work and there's nothing wrong with that that's how we learn all the way through but i think the thing it, it did most of all was it for the first time i really feel it brought edtech up the agenda from the something we need to talk about when we've got time so we haven't got a choice we've got to talk about it so now the moving forward is all about how do we keep that conversation going absolutely absolutely sorry steve no i was just going to say and there were there were many different books brought out and it was amazing how many people that are were these um, traditionalists were, were coming out with uh, very similar models that they produced, but applying it to the context of online and blended learning. And I think that's the thing of <clears throat> the whole conversation around why, why we're trying to transform things, why we're trying to unpick it, what can it actually enhance 
uh, rather than just replicate. And I think you've touched upon all of those kind of things. And you've touched on, and your book talks about something I first uh, heard Bob Harrison go into, those failures around um, around the Los Angeles iPad mm. uh, conversation and everything else. But and, and, and people always listen, oh, well, we've tried it and, we, and it's failed and, and we, we tried this and, and a lot of people like it back to um, Tony Blair and, and, and stuff in regards to the investment made in technology and how um, people just invested and, and, and bought smart boards and all these kind of things. And it actually really didn't move anything on for, for, for many people's view. But it's all that thing of when everybody or anybody asks the question about, or oh, how do you use this or want to use this? The question has to be why, really? And whether that's infrastructure or anything, it has to be, okay, so why are you thinking about doing it? And, and, and really, what, what is the intended outcome of what do you want to achieve from it? And then let's unpick which tool is the best one for it or the platform or anything else. And I think um, it does link back to the book, and I always I always go with this, but the what and the how are not the first bits that we start with. It's it's, it's the why we need to be using it first. For, and, and I think the pandemic is people are always considering, like you say, the negatives. Oh, well, students don't have access to tech and everything else. But there has been so many things that have been improved in regards to accessibility disadvantaged those students who are lacking in confidence lo- loads of different things but more personalized learning experience and all those kind of things that are hidden because of maybe the traditionalist approach that want to um go back to the old ways because they were maybe dreading ed tech coming to the forefront i think i i absolutely agree i think the other thing is you know i don't think anyone could ever claim to be an expert on everything but i think one thing that i found helpful and i'm very fortunate in my experience over over recent years is is sometimes it helps if you can see from a number of different perspectives and from around the world and and once you've got that kind of breadth it does allow you to connect some of the dots these things that seem like they're all separate challenges are actually quite heavily in connect, uh, interconnected so you know we saw early on in, in in terms of 2020 and covid you know we saw the international schools in the middle east adapting differently because they had a different technology base to start with and you can see some of the structures and lessons learned and how that then reflected in what some of the steps that became more so probably in wave two in the UK in terms of schools looking at as part of that journey. But I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that was is the real difference between the successful and the, well, we tried, but not sure, was you've got to start with a having actually a vision. that That's the, the, the whys and the hows. You know, why are we doing this? What are we hoping to achieve? How does it align with our broader school development plan strategically? How are we going to measure it? You know, and, and it, you've got to start with that and get the stakeholders together. And the common theme in many of those projects that um, you, you mentioned and I touched on at the early part of the book was actually much more about confidence. And confidence is the key to so many things. You know, how many schools and the number of people I spoke to and they just started smirking or smiling at me when I talked about it. But the number of times that, you know, schools or districts in the U.S., you know, would make a decision on a solution that was going to be their standard for whatever it might be, whether it was a student information system or a curriculum delivery tool in the classrooms. And the message down to staff was, good news, we've bought this product. You're going to be using it at the effect from you know the start of the autumn term. And that, that sense of, well, the reason why these aren't going to work is because people don't have confidence using the tools. They don't understand why we've chosen that tool, what our aspirations or the benefits are, how we're going to monitor it. And in any walk of life, if you don't feel part of the decision, if you don't feel involved in the process, if you don't feel you've got a voice, you're already starting on a bit of a sticky wicket. If you then add to that a typical mindset to date, you know, I think in education, because of all the time pressures, you know, we've often been in a position where inset is those first couple of days at the start of the academic year and then knock yourself out. Well, that's not the way to give, you know, new technology and adoption, um, a good opportunity for success and it's certainly not on not fair on staff to find you know another slice of time they haven't got to actually build that level of confidence so flipping it round and thinking actually if we know what we're trying to do and how we're going to measure it and why we're doing it we can actually plan it as a project to be successful first and actually the race isn't to do as much as we can as quickly as we can but just put some building blocks in place that we can be successful at and measure so that as a byproduct, we'll build confidence for the next layer and the next layer. And that's the same in the business. You know, you wouldn't say I've got an idea for 10 new products to develop. I tell you what, we'll make all 10 now. You'd start with one and you'd, you'd measure the success and how well the production team and the staff got on with it. And then if you were successful with it, you'd build and expand your product line. 
and I, I think you know it's not necessarily the best analogy but i think it's the same in education you can't change everything at once we had to kind of focus on get the core building blocks right get the staff confident skilled and, and being able to use it and just as much you know there were plenty of great examples of schools that really looped in the parents alongside the students as part of that cohort to build their confidence on the tools the schools are using so that they can actually particularly in primary play a more active role supporting their children as learners and again all those things i think you know the tech isn't the key point here it's the process for delivery and adoption and actually getting it embedded that really shapes the success rate yeah i, I definitely agree and I, and I definitely agree with this idea that you start small and kind of build that up and test that prototype that and work that work that to see the success i wonder though if i'm just being provocative ben here um if that we're talking about technology solutions and the why of technology mm. solutions when we we're maybe just talking in a in a in a system that isn't always conducive to allowing this dan you talked about there um how almost disappointing it is that people have just gone wanting to go back to normal as if there is such a uh, such a thing and and that we're using technology here as a uh, it could be enhancing things rather than just a substitution and, and the transformational stuff that can come from it but we are in a system aren't we that doesn't necessarily lead that that easily uh, and and no. and change that easily and, and you mentioned in the book you talk about the concept of um whether whether education is kind of set up on a, on a tailorism and that concept of um being like a production line type concept and whether that's whether that's the the, the issue that's that's not fit for purpose I think there's a there's a huge narrative on the go at the moment, which is difficult because, you know, I'm involved with the Fed and, and part of that process, like many other groups, is looking at that kind of longer term plan for education and how we deliver things. We've got this whole narrative in parallel, which I, I think school leaders are starting to embrace and be more aware of, whether it's, you know, alongside all the other challenges they're trying to absorb, which is we're having to have this conversation about the, the weighting of skills alongside knowledge and actually as we become more technology embedded in the workplace, how we're making sure that our workforce are fit for the jobs. We're already seeing skills shortages in some areas. And I use the analogy of kind of shooting ducks in a fairground, but I guess it's a bit like clay pigeon shooting. You know, we're not aiming at the target of what we need or what we think is appropriate today. We're trying to look ahead and aim for what we're going to need in five years time. And I think if we start thinking about the skills that are really transferable to the workplace that we want all of our children to have. At some point, we have to accept that whether we think it's appropriate or not, beneficial or not, we have to give them exposure and, and skills in that technology at an earlier point. Now, that might also feed into whether it's exposure for teacher training and other factors as well, which is a, a different conversation. But th I guess the, the bottom line is, you know, you're going to be trying to push sand uphill if you don't recognize the fact that technology is going to have an increasing role. And so those school leaders, MAT leaders that are smart, and I don't wish to be derogatory to anybody, but I'm saying it as it is, the smart ones will recognize it's much better that you embrace and get involved and start planning and thinking as part of that journey now than waiting until you're behind and you're trying to play catch up. Now, what do we mean by behind in catch up? Well, I'd argue there's a big factor, which is about staff retention. It's about actually getting great innovative teachers joining your school and not giving them the tools to inspire and lead and innovate. And that actually they'll, they'll go to other schools and trusts that do provide that framework. I think that's a, a really key factor. I think unless we recognize that when we talk ed tech, whilst that central heart is about teaching and learning, Many of the tools also provide benefits outside of the pure curriculum model of how many progress points or impact does it had on a child around well-being, about effective communication, staff well-being, time management, the speed that we can provide feedback, collaboration, and so on. And if we, unless we bring these things together and, and recognize that when we're talking about you know, a digital strategy, we're not talking a conversation about what kit and what software do you want in your school. We're talking about it being one cog in that broader discussion strategically about how we're going to continue to develop and evolve our schools to be fit for purpose and give our children the best possible experience. And if you've got a mixed cohort like I have, whether it's alternative provision, 
or whether it's specialist provision, it doesn't take long to recognize that different learners engage with content and curriculum in different ways. And if we don't think that gaming or games and gamification and VR and AR is going to engage with their children, then we need to stop and think again. And if we think that for the next 20 years, the only way we're going to capture evidence of knowledge is going to be with a big biro, we need to think again. You know, we might say it should be the keyboard, but I'd argue, you know, particularly in specialist provision, it should be your voice and other ways that you can evidence the way that you learn things. But I'm trying to kind of wrap those efforts together to say, look, it's not about a race, but how you do things quickly. It's about recognizing that this is so intertwined in every aspect of running an operation, a multi-academy trust or a school of which its sole product is to deliver the best possible outcome for the learners, that you can't put it in a box and decide whether you will or will open the lid for the next few years. It's there, and I believe it's part of your fundamental duty as leaders of, of schools that you have an obligation to put that in place because it's a key part of the skills our learners need. Yeah, I really like in your book, Al, you, you bring in Mandanak's uh, four stages of technology use. I think it, it kind of really it's a really helpful way to look at kind of where where people are where where departments within schools are at and where schools are at in general um and i think kind of just just to bring that into play here i think there are there are a lot of people a lot of people teachers organizations um still kind of struggling around that survival stage i guess I absolutely, I absolutely agree, and I, I use the kind of analogy. You know, we've learned our lessons in our trust for sure, and we st and we still are. You know, um, if, if someone says to me, "Al, come in and do a do a, a class in one of the schools," and I do lots of classes on STEM, you know, AR lessons and, and activities with students, and you ask me to walk in the door without any of my own personal equipment, and there's just you know a, a tablet or a laptop front of the class, and there's a you know a trolley of kit. My confidence level is already, you know, I'm going to be down a level in terms of how does this all connect together? How does it work? Is it going to be operational? How am I going to keep these these 30 learners engaged? I hope this is going to work. I hope the Wi-Fi connection is good enough for all 30 of them. And, and so immediately we, we, we start with the questions and the thought process of just not having confidence in the technology. And, and that comes with familiarity. Now, it's a chicken and egg. You know, if you use the technology regularly, you build confidence. But if schools just introduce kit and it appears magically as this box in the corner and the teacher's left to figure it out as they go along, the natural persuasion of anybody whenever they're under pressure will be, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to revert back to the way I used to do things because I, I know that works and I'm confident with it. And over time, the, the use of that technology diminishes and diminishes and diminishes. And how you mitigate that is, you know, I believe is there's kind of two key parts. The first part is obviously the, the the CPD, the ongoing CPD that empowers teachers to become comfortable and familiar. And of course, alongside that, you've got to provide the time for that CPD. But the second one, and it seems really simple and obvious, but I think it works in business and it works in, in most organizations, is really about the flag bearers, the champions. Is actually giving people the go-to points, the people that are the, the, the more confident, the, the ones that have manage to achieve or innovate using a solution so that you signpost throughout your trust. There's different people for different solutions who are also empowered to share and showcase what they've been doing, what's worked well for them. And at the same time, we've got a fantastic and ever-growing online mechanism now for us to share across our you know, broader PLNs. But I think within schools, we kind of have to foster that. And where the biggest, the biggest leap of faith, I think the biggest measure of strong leadership, and I don't care what organization you're in, is actually we've got to get senior leaders of, of schools and, and, and mats to actually delegate to middle leaders and teachers to actually take more of the lead on this. Now, of course, we want to shape it back and align it with the school development plan. But again, you know, I, 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 I've mentioned this a couple of times and I appreciate I'm using a, a very uh, sweeping statement here, but um, wouldn't be the first time, you know. In many cases, our senior leaders will reflect back to their time in the classroom and won't have the reference point of the successful use of technology and, and the wins or the impact that it made. So we're kind of expecting them to shape the where should we go looking, what should we think about, to rather than actually delegating down to say, what do we want? Why do we want it? What have you used in previous schools before you came and joined us? What did you tools are you, are you familiar with that you have confidence at that you've used in your personal life? What are the kinds of apps that students could use now? Where are we seeing new games or overlink, overlaps with other technology? And I think we have to have that courage to empower 
much more of that decision making in terms of the recommendation process down the tree to actually allow us to to start looking at and to, to to innovate and i think if you celebrate innovation i mean ironically lots of these things and apologies for for going on a bit you know I, it, it gets me sometimes that we, we walk into schools and of course we're all about making sure that best practice you know, we, we really want to celebrate and showcase the work that our students do we want to make sure that we kind of recognize all those that are doing stuff and then when it comes to the staff we kind of forget many of those rules that we apply to young learners and say well, why aren't we showcasing staff that are great, doing great innovation? Why aren't we signposting other staff to go to them and get that kind of support? It shouldn't be a case of, I don't want to put my hand up and say, I don't really know how to use Teams because I'm going to look like the, you know, the idiot in the room or I'm going to feel inadequate. It's quite the opposite. It's, it should be a case of everyone's going to be at a different level in their, in their technical journals journey. So don't spend and buy loads of more kit first. Get everybody upskilled to the point where they can leverage the benefit from it. Here endeth the lesson, according to Al. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's good stuff, um, and and I'm I'm enjoying just kind of listening to Al and kind of getting back to the basics of of kind of of digital strategy of of on the ground making this stuff work so that it sticks and it's it's embedded within organisations, um, and I think just just going through the book and revisiting it like I did. Uh, today in preparation it's, there's just so much there's just so much handy tips there and as someone myself in my role i'm in i'm in the 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 kind of middle of thinking and put, starting to put together ideas for for a digital strategy um, and there's just there's so many takeaways from it um yeah i guess in in terms of the book is is are you expecting for is it for the, the teacher on the ground to read is it for the is it for the head teacher to read um who, who's going to get the most from it you know that that's one of the hardest questions to answer because obviously i wrote it based on all the the aspects that that i've been involved in in my experiences and i have to stress you know and, and you'll know from having read reading the book i've also taken the, the words of wisdom from a lot of people including your good selves you know to, to feed into that because i think now more than ever you need that kind of validation on that sounding board nobody's got the answers to everything in fact one of the overarching themes in the book is you know where where appropriate i'll give you some suggestions of the questions to ask rather than the answers because the one size fits all approach just really doesn't 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 float from my point of view um so i think in terms of readership the first and obvious one was yes absolutely i wanted teachers to engage with it in, in many ways those that were more let you know nervous about technology to really reassure that it's not as techy as it seems and actually everyone's got a role to play and if i can make some of it sound a bit simpler and more accessible then that's great because it will, it will boost the conversation for those more experienced and, and involved in edtech and digital leadership hopefully there's some validation in there then hopefully some food for thought and some different ideas um, alongside it i try to short circuit that by you know checklists and top lists and top tens of things that resonated with me and hopefully they will equally resonate with others again sometimes it's about having one book on the shelf rather than lots that you can just dip into but i also had this kind of conundrum which is you know i've spent 30 years working in the edtech space as a vendor i, I couldn't just ignore that as part of my edtech diary because it would end up being in you know an edtech duh without finishing off the sentence so what i recognize is you know when we think about as a vendor what are the lessons that i learned well one is you have exactly the same viewpoint in terms of recognizing the landscape of technology moving forwards um, but there are lessons to learn in the way that vendors have had to learn to adapt their solutions to meet a changing landscape in education that actually moving forward there's far more focus on for the right reasons successful vendors there's a common theme co-production you don't produce products and then say hey guys do you think it's good you actually work with educators and all those involved in schools at a much earlier stage to make sure you shape the narrative of, and the functionality within the product. I think we're changing in terms of the delivery model, the options, whether it's desktop, server, cloud, what are the choices and how that might interact. But I also reflected on it and wearing my, my mat hat, recognized that when I go to BEP, you know, part of my time I'm, I'm on a stand as an exhibitor and part of my time I'm now, normally getting an opportunity to, to stand up and do a presentation about something. But I also go for a mooch and a scooch around the show, wearing my mat hat, looking at solutions that might be useful to particular challenges we've got. And when I go looking around from a, a map perspective, there's other questions I'm considering. So, okay, that's a good solution. You know, 
will it work within our setting? Is it device agnostic? Is it scalable? Are we going to get locked into it? If we upload all of our student data and decide in two years' time there's a better solution out there, can we migrate easily or are we going to have to start all over again? If we've taken on view the plans that we're hoping in three years' time to expand another school and add to the trust, is this going to scale? Is it going to work if we decide to you know, move and extend with more Chromebooks or, or, or the Windows direction? There's all those kind of questions that I think are really important for educators to understand. So by trying to share the thought processes from a vendor's perspective and how vendors go about designing, developing, and making products sustainable, and part of that is about the money because you don't want to buy a product from a company that's about to go out of business. There's got to be a happy medium where the, there's, there's sufficient equity in, in buying product that actually funds future development and, and evolution of a solution that actually empowers educators to make better, more informed decisions. So understanding the, the kind of watch out you, and make sure you ask these questions before you go any further, I kind of felt closed the loop a little bit. So there's a section from a vendor's perspective that I kind of hope if you're an ed tech um, company or you're looking as a teacher and many of the people that reach out to me to be honest are are in education but have great ideas and I want advice on how to take that idea and turn it into a product or a service then that's very much that kind of area I hope will give them some suggestions pointers and hopefully a few pitfalls to avoid yeah and we're really grateful that we were in uh, in some of these top tens and that we got a chance to feature in your book so thanks for using us on that point that you were talking there about solutions one of the things that i resonated with was about the idea of co-creation and collaboration across mm. the sector uh, you talk about people um uh, you took i think the phrase you used is co-production so that the yeah. products aren't just a vendor's idea let's do this and let's sell it to education it's more like working with educators to help develop the products and i, I know that's something that you've been proud of at net support isn't it Absolutely. And I think that the landscape the last 18 months particularly has almost accelerated that. We're much more the narrative now about research-informed and evidence technology. And that, of course, can come from many strands. But I'm absolutely a firm believer that much as I say on my own journey of 30 years, you know, I've been working in all sorts of education settings. And whilst I'm adding support and hopefully, you know, valuable input in those settings, I'm also learning all the time. I think if we go back to the mindset of a vendor, if you want to make sure that technology is fit for purpose, will genuinely have impact and can stand up against that research evidence and, and, and information, then why on earth would you not co-produce with the end user? Why would you not seek that that evidence and that feedback as, as you shape the product? You know, And I think we've learned the huge benefit to that. We've seen the last 18 months that a product that I would say is 100% perfect for the modern classroom, well, the the word and definition of modern classroom shifted. So surely the product has to shift too. And so the approach we've taken is work with educators, whatever the setting, whether it's for the safeguarding side or the classroom pedagogy. But then we've gone a kind of step further and we've gone externally. We use, for example, Education Alliance Finland, who take our products and they apply against their frameworks and standards, hand it out to schools in Finland. Teachers have never seen it before, use it, and they validate it across their framework in terms of you know its pedagogical value, its ease of use, whether it's meaningful, it's well signposted, you know, and, and newsflash, you know, one of the other things we've learned, think back to teacher confidence, is it's not the product with the most features that wins the battle. It's the one that's easiest to implement and use that wins the battle. And so it's very much about redefining what 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 I think are the boundaries of a good product. It's about ease of use, scalability, flexibility, future proofing. There's so many more different values. And, and I don't believe you can do that without engaging. You know, I don't believe you'd, you'd build a new car without getting consumer feedback. So why the hell would we think software for education? I mean, to do so identifies as a vendor. You just don't get that education's different. Yeah, it, it's really interesting, isn't it? That kind of whole conversation around user experience as well. And we've, mm. we've kind of seen over the last five years that, that, element of user experience has, has exploded into in, within industry um the the amount of roles and jobs that you can now get within under the user experience umbrella uh, and kind of seeing the importance of that within education I, I i was lucky enough a few weeks ago to be at the digital transformation expo in at the excel in london um and and a lot of the sessions i went to were were very much talking about the that kind of user experience and and in, in everything that you do and there was a there was an ed tech wing to it and albeit it was it was mainly for higher education but 
uh, I went along to a few of their sessions and and I was I, I wasn't wasn't surprised but I guess I was just kind of it made me think and made me reflect that they were they were calling their students kind of the the customer the end user and and, and I guess for universities it, it is it's a bit different to to FE or secondary or primary um because the students are actually paying for it but actually that mindset that you enter when you start seeing the student as the end user um and just like a, a company that wants to succeed will will make that user experience for their end user the the best they can make it um and i guess having that mindset when it comes to things like ed tech and probably just education in general um i think if we if we if we delve into that more and push that more in the coming years i think it could be quite an exciting time for ed tech Absolutely. I think we, I think we, the key thing that I see is that we, we've, we've hopefully getting to the point now where we're not just assuming a product that works in the commercial world. If you just give it a different box and ship it into education, it's fit for purpose, recognizing the distinct differences of the nuances, but equally flip the other way, not shortchanging the development of educational products by not applying the rigorous standards that would apply to commercial software. And it's about finding that happy medium about like you say, the nuances of, of, of the way that products are presented and designed, that kind of over-the-shoulder review of where the, the cursor's hovering or the finger's hovering because it's not clear and signposted where to go, down to that accessibility. You know, and accessibility and equity, we want the same thing. We want to buy tools that most, if not all, of our students can engage in. So, again, we're back to that concept of how well thought through is it. And if we say how well thought through, to do an education solution, you probably need that thought to have included that input from educators themselves. Yeah, def definitely. And I guess it does just emphasize that point. And and you, I like how you brought in there, like the 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 equity or the the equity uh, of it as well. And that and I think that's something else that that's kind of been emphasized over the last couple of years. That actually, um, are we are we thinking about those who, when it comes to technology, who who are in need of of extra support and 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 um and all that comes with it and and we've seen that probably on a national level especially here in the uk where where we're not up to scratch with that are we and, and nope. we've got a long way to go i think that's really really key and that's almost why when we come back to the beginning of the journey when we talk about that digital strategy and, and the venn diagram that i tend to use which is you know you've got teachers and children at the heart but around it feeding in to shape that vision and strategy you know, you've you've got everything from the IT side, but you've absolutely got you've got your data privacy, you've got your send in there, you've got your safeguarding built into that, you've got your feedback from parents, you've got your board of trustees, you've got all those stakeholders. You know, and of course the IT team are there to make sure you're not building on sandy land and and to provide that guidance. But I always signpost that the finance really dictates the speed of the journey, which shouldn't shape it. And I think now again, all these conversations they always come back to this common pathway, which is now, if we're going to do something that's going to be successful, we can't exclude any of these factors, whether it is, you know, that accessibility or whether it is its flexibility or its scalability. We're always having to make decisions now, but with an eye to the future to make sure we make wise decisions, not least because, you know, our budgets are so tight and, and hard fought for. We've got to make sure that we don't make as many more mistakes than, we, than is reasonable. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. And in, in the book as well, you talk about um, a kind of heart, uh, go back towards the, the work that you did with um, another good friend of ours, Mark Anderson, about um, building a digital strategy mm. and how how important that is. Um, and it's interesting. We, I suppose it's that age old question, well, maybe not age old, certainly a few years old question, which is, do we create a digital strategy as a standalone strategy or do we do a strategy that is kind of part of a wider teaching learning assessment, leadership culture type strategies that incorporates digital? And and I, our, our friend, Mr. Hope, I know, I know has one particular viewpoint on that and I wondered what, what yours was on it. Do you think it needs to be separate or have you, have you, have you seen good examples on, of both? No, I think there's a general rule, which is when we talk about that strand, because you encapsulate, you know, whether it's me doing a presentation or, the, or Mark and I, the work we did to try and put together that kind of free guide to step through other people's experiences and top tips. The natural follow up from that is so it's a separate project, is it? It's a separate entity. And of course, in one sense, well, you've got to consider that as a perhaps a separate meeting and a separate strand. 
But to suggest that it's separate and outside those other strands, I, I'd say on the whole, is, is, is not the way to go. If we think about what we're trying to do and we start with the why and, and what we're trying to achieve and, and how we're going to do it, fundamentally to be successful in any project and we can change the word digital to be you know i don't know redecorating the site changing the way that we do anything frankly um it all starts with strong leadership and communication and if we want to be successful in the way that we implement change and bring people along and give it an opportunity to be successful and embed that change it always starts as part of that process with having the right culture for change within an entity and organization and as I said, you know, that digital strategy is shaped ultimately about our strategic expectations and aspirations from a teaching and learning perspective. You know, what's in our school development plan? What are we talking about in our CEF? Where are the areas we want to develop? Now that helps shape some of the priorities on that journey, maybe not the whole boundary of it in, in its entirety. So we can think of it as a microcosm, but it's actually shaped and the catalyst and the timeline, everything we do around it is, is fundamentally linked to all those other aspects. So some some schools, some mats have a separate digital strategy. Some, in effect, have a, a section alongside their um, you know their, their broader school development plan and their strategic plan that references how digital interweaves within that. And I don't think any one way is right or wrong. I think the key is just understanding that you cannot consider any one of these topics in isolation any more than you can't talk about the strategic development of your map without thinking about how technology might play a role or that you can talk about how you're going to improve culture if at the same time you're not thinking about the way that you're actually going to make staff feel like they're valued and that their professional development is just as important as our students learning journey and, and there are so many of those bits where yes take a step back and recognize that unless you want to take the, the approach of you know different fingers in the dike or whack-a-mole you've actually got to think of them as a whole Yes, yes, I, I agree. The, do you know, I always delay trying to be able to get that unmute button off because I, I, I mute myself because I know that I tap around and, and, and so that's what, why it took a delay. But you're right. As long as you're muted and not laughing, I don't mind. No, 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 no <laughs> muted. So I think I think there's there's something there's something that we've all got to take from that. And I think from the book, there is something that people, like you said, you talked about dipping in and being able to, it's not necessarily a, a cover to cover thing. It might be times that you'll jump in at certain points um, and and learn and you might think oh i need i need to think about a podcast or i'm looking for somebody to be able to support me with this or i can look at when he talked about vendors and he talked about how 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 they work and i'm thinking about getting into something um what's the kind of the best practice the top tip so i think that's that's what makes it really useful mm -hmm. as we kind of draw things to a close i wondered if you if you've got anything you want to share with our listeners in terms of your top tips how you'd kind of um whether it's an education perspective or the budding entrepreneurs or something similar, I wonder whether you, you want to leave our listeners with something like that. I don't expect that anything I say will be, um, you know, revolutionary to anybody. I think from an education perspective, the thing that I've been trying to just simply encourage is no matter what your experience is over the last 18 months, there will be aspects of within your map or within your school where technology has helped has empowered and i really 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 want to encourage leaders within schools to continue that discussion and that narrative to reach out look for the references of how other schools and mats have operated to try and get those ideas and best practice to kind of continue that that evolution i've also seen in parallel putting my other bat hat on a massive explosion in the edtech space and there's so many new products and so many new startups and there is absolutely an appetite for edtech but that comes i think with a degree of responsibility much in the same way as i try and you know give a voice to as many different new products and solutions that i see brackets that are good um we also need to be mindful that there's also an obligation on us not to simply rush things to market not rush things into schools we've got to be mindful of actually getting the evidence behind it to make sure that we're not trying to sell solutions that nobody needs but we're actually meeting the needs and the priorities right now and they are quite clear and quite defined so i think on both sides of the case there's real opportunity but it's also about just being being wise and cautious with the decision making that we take yeah definitely um al it's been it's been great having you on fourth time 
Um, I think is that a record? I was that. I, I can't probably. think of anyone else's. I, I think he's probably been on more times than Steve, to be honest. <laughs> well, that's not difficult. I'm always here in spirit. You're here in spirit. I'm you the omnipresent. Talk. <laughs> I'm I'm very honoured that you you you've invited me back. I, I'm also really really appreciative of the support you guys gave to me in my research and, and doing the book. So again, you know, a big thank you for that. It is appreciated. No, no, we, yeah, and thanks for all the support you give to Edge of Futurists as well, um, especially our our annual awards event where you, you've been a net support of being the sponsor for the last uh, three years. So thanks for that. And, My uh, pleasure. Yeah. Uh, did, I, I don't know, before we went on air, because we put the overlay on the YouTube video, uh, we, we people can't see your lovely background, Al. Should we, let, should we let people see what you've done with your background? It's subtle. On it. <laughs> Look at that. There it is. Just a, there, a, a little hint of yellow. There, there's my EdTech diary. Yeah. Is there a picture? Yeah, some people there. Look, some people that we know, famous faces in the background, blurred out, obviously, of course. But yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and, and you know, and that's another reflection, which is. You know, obviously, I'm proud to, to write a book that people like, but actually the support people give in terms of, you know, sharing and showcasing it, it really makes you feel kind of, you know, humbled and proud to be part of such a great community. Yeah, yeah and you, you just have to be part of that that EdTech community on Twitter to see how much people are getting out of it and uh, the amount of love that it receives. So, uh, yeah, thanks for giving Absolutely. that gift to, to this community, Al. Thank you, folks fantastic well another episode down um uh not that it's down and another episode out another another episode in in the tank i was talking about it today 154 episodes it's um it, it's pretty cool if you haven't already subscribed on your uh, youtube channel or to our youtube channel or on your podcast app please do so but thanks again al for joining us on episode 154 we've been the edgy futurists mm -hmm.